Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. I have the incredible honor of introducing two amazing speakers. And excuse me, I'll read the bios because I don't want to wing it like I usually do. So Dr. Tevi Troy is a best-selling presidential historian and the former senior government official. His latest book, as you, as you saw, thank you for the prop. Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. In 2007, Dr. Troy was confirmed by the U.S. Senate as Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services under the George W. Bush administration. In that role, he was the, the COO in effect of the largest civilian department in the government with a budget of a mere 716 billion with a B dollars and more than 67,000 employees. Think about the, the HR departments. <laughs> Dr. Troy has a, a, a extensive White House experience having served in many things, um, including uh, has served as deputy assistant and an acting assistant to the president, uh, President Bush uh, for domestic policy, very important. And today, Dr. Troy is a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. My dear friend, Rabbi David Saperstein, who I've had the pleasure of working with for, for many years of the URJ. Um, he, for 40 years, Rabbi Saperstein directed the Religious Action Center Reform Judaism, which represents the reform movement, the progressive wing of American Judaism, and the largest segment of Jews in America. During the second term of the Obama administration, many of us were incredibly, incredibly Incredible that he served as the U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom. Uh, we were just, we didn't stop failing for like three years. It was just amazing. And since leaving government, Rabbi Zapperstein has served as senior policy, senior advisor on policy and strategy to the URJ Union for Reform Judaism. Uh, he served recently as president of the World Union for Progressive Judaism, the international arm of the Reform Movement. And on that note, my speakers. Rabbi Saperstein and I came up with this idea of a series of debates on politics for advancing to the 2024 election. And we, although we're both very good friends, we were prepared for kind of bare knuckle local combat in a number of communities around the country. But after what happened this past week, I decided I was not gonna pack my boxing gloves for tonight. I think what we need to do is talk about Jewish unity and Jewish continuity and how we must be together. And with that, I'd just like to ask Rabbi Saperstein to come up for a second. And if you remember nothing else about this night, you can take out your phones. <laughs> because I want to say to all of you, Ine Natov Manayim Shevet Achim Gamiyacha from Psalm 133. And how good it is to see the tribes together as brothers. And again, we disagree on politics and we are drummers. And there's nothing more important than Jewish continuity right now and Jewish unity. Yesterday in my synagogue, my rabbi, a very thoughtful, very wise person, I saw him break down, break down tears multiple times over Shabbat. It was a very, very hard week for him, a very hard week for all of us. And the rabbi spoke about a rabbi who lived in Israel in the 1920s, Rabbi Harlan. 
And Rabbi Harlow, after one of the pogroms that took place in the 1920s, yes, we had a pogrom this week, but there have been pogroms before against Jews in 1920 and in 1929 and in 1936. Unfortunately, this is something that's not due to our people. And before they came to Israel, there were pogroms in Europe and Kishniev and Kristallnacht, and we all know the horrible, horrible names. And Rabbi Harlock wrote after one of those terrible, terrible writes, he wrote, when a Jew anywhere, anywhere in the world is killed for being a Jew, every Jew feels it. Doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative or secular or orthodox or Marxist or a capitalist, or if you live in America or if you live in Europe or if you live in Timbuktu, every Jew feels it. And we also know that every Jew is targeted. We are all subject to the hate that unfortunately has been with our community for so very long. And I'm sick of it. And we need to fight back against it. And we need to stand together to do it. I need to reflect a little bit about the specifics of the situation in Israel. I have many, many close relatives, many friends who live in Israel. None were untouched by what happened last week. My daughter is studying in Israel right now. She's in Jerusalem. And she called me last week and she asked if she could come home or she should come home. And it wasn't easy as a father, but I told her no. It's the most important thing you could do is learn the Masorah, learn the tradition so that you can pass it on to your children and your grandchildren and they can pass it on to their children and their grandchildren. And that's why the Jewish people are still here today, thousands of years later, after people have been trying to kill us over and over and over again. It's why you walk down the street and you'll see a Jew. You don't walk down the street and see a Hittite, right? The Jews are still here with us because we pass the tradition on from generation to generation. And there's nothing more important than doing that. And yes, Rabbi Saberstein and I have political differences, and we'll talk a little bit about that, although, again, without the boxing gloves tonight because of what's going on. But there's nothing more important than Jewish unity. And I have a brother who lives in Jerusalem. And the funerals he's been going to this week, he's been telling me about them. The stories are just horrific. I can't even bear to tell them. And I have a cousin, a first cousin, who lives on the Gaza border. Her father served this great country, the United States of America, in World War II in the Navy. He told me stories about seeing shipmates blown up by mines in the, in the Pacific Islands. He was also the um, lightweight boxing champ in the United States Navy. So, yeah. so um, you know, we've had a long tradition of uh, combat with the Paris. But she's, she's American, she speaks perfect English, and she is often the voice of the Jews who live uh, in the Gaza area. Um, she and I love each other dearly, we're very different. She's secular, she's left, it's fine. We love each other, that's more important than anything. And the horrific abroad, and I, I um, I really want to um, acknowledge the person at the moment who said that uh, we should refer to uh, them as animals. They're right. Animals would never do this. The evildoers, the evildoers came to her cubicles and they killed 
many, many of her friends do. She's lived with it for 40 years. She hid for seven hours. She turned off the electricity, she turned off the light, she turned off the air conditioning, and she just hid. Eventually, she got rescued and me and her friends in the original house of Her granddaughters were in a safe room. And you know what these people do is you know what they did is the Israelis are so used when the tire goes off, they go into the safe room, which is safe, the safest place to be when a missile comes. But it's not the safest place to be when there's a terror attack. Because you know where they are, you go right after them, you can burn them out, you can shoot through the room, they're isolated and they're and they, they can't they can't work together. And, um, and the enemy knew this, they knew this. And so the granddaughters are in the safe room. And the terrorists come into the house and they go to the safe room they're trying to get the door open. And their father is the one who tells them to get under a blanket. And he says, we're going to throw some bombs. And he's trying to uh, get them to be gone. And the terrorists open the door and the father-in-law had the son, my cousin's son-in-law, the father of the girls, had an M16 was close. To the terrorist as I am to Rabbi Sabashi. And he shot the terrorist and thank and I hate to say thank God killed him, but he did kill him. And I say thank God because otherwise they would be dead and brutalized and beheaded and burned and all the other horrible things that were done to Jews as well. And so after he killed that one terrorist, the other ones ran away. Thank God. And I tell you all this because it's so personal to me. And it's so personal to all of you. All of you have stories, and there's 1,400 dead, and unfortunately, the number's growing, and there's 1,400 stories, and even more, because for all the people who died, there's survivor stories as well, and there's stories of heroism, unbelievable heroism. Did you read about that one 25-year-old woman who saved her entire kibbutz? She heard it was coming. She went to the armory. She organized the defense. You know, people talk about how Israel suffered a defeat in this war, and it did. That first battle, when the brave evildoers came and attacked Innocents who were unarmed, real brave. That was a terrible defeat. That's where we lost so many, so many people. But there's another story that hasn't been yet told. My brother who lives in Jerusalem calls it 1072. 1072 is October, obviously October 7th. But 1072 is what happened after the initial assault. We all know the terrible stories that the Israeli army in organized fashion did not get there for many hours, unconscionable number of hours. But Sandal-clad citizens, people who had served in the army previously, people who were currently in the army. There's one retired general who's 62 years old. Uh, they went down to, to Gaza when they saw what was happening, and they fought back. Hamas had plans to hold this territory. They weren't just going to come have their little wilding party and go back. They wanted to hold the territory so as to open a corridor to Tel Aviv. But these sandal-clad citizens, they pushed back, they fought back. And again, unbelievable tales of heroism. The 1,500 terrorists who died, that wasn't the Hamas plan. The Hamas plan was to hold that territory. But these sandal-clad citizens came back and killed them and saved the state of Israel from even worse fate than the horrors of the So again, this is very personal to me. This is a very difficult time. Um, but we should also recognize that the state of Israel has been through difficult times before. My, my rabbi said, and since I Torah, when we were reading the Torah, we already knew some of the terrible things that had happened, but not the full extent of it. 
He said that in Reishi to Genesis, the, the portion of Marshall we read this week, that we hear this phrase over and over again. There was morning, there was evening, and then there was morning. And he said, the morning that comes after the evening, after the darkness comes the light. And who knows what will come of this? You know, in 1973, 2,600 plus Jews died in a dastardly surprise attack of the Yom Kippur War. And it was a terrible, terrible tragedy. And the Israeli government then, as now, was unprepared for what happened. But four years later, and I still remember, I was a little kid, but I remember Anwar Sadat coming to Jerusalem. And two years after that, they signed a peace treaty, which meant that Israel was really never again invaded by the standing army. They were invited, invaded by terrorist evildoers this week, but a standing army with tanks and planes that, that never again happened after that peace treaty was signed. And so maybe, maybe the paradigm can shift so that things get better in the future. But for now, again, as I said, um, but anyway, the boxing gloves a little bit, but I want to talk about what I mean by Jewish continuity. I mean, Rabbi uh, Shmuley said that uh, we can talk about the conservative approach versus progressive approach. I'm going to talk about my uh, my conservative vision for Jewish unity. And it's really, it's, uh, it's just one of the things that I'm going to lay out today. But first, I just want to talk about the word conservative. I know in many progressive circles, conservative is a bad word, a terrible word at all. I think when I hear the word conservative, I think about the, the root of it, which is to conserve. What are we trying to conserve? In the Jewish context, we're trying to conserve the Jewish people, Jewish tradition, Jewish knowledge. And we've been conserving it successfully for 3,000 years. And so if I'm a conservative, I'm a conservative for that reason more than any other reason. I want to conserve the Jewish way of life and pass it on to the next generation, the next generation, the generation after that. And in the American context, I think one of the reasons conservative gets a bad rap is because people think about it from the European perspective. If you are a conservative in Europe, that means you wanted to conserve the monarchy. You wanted to conserve feudalism. That's not what we want to conserve in America. In America, we want to conserve the spirit of the revolution, the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so conservatives have been the ones who want to protect the Constitution, to protect the ideals of the Declaration. Independence. And so the, uh, again, the, the bad word conservative is really something that is, I think, misunderstood. And one thing I learned from uh, my friend Rabbi Jack Wertheimer, who's a longstanding uh, conservative rabbi, he's written a book, a tremendous book called The New American Judaism. I encourage people to read it. He talked about how the conservative movement, and I said conservative, I'm talking about the JTS, the conservative Jewish tradition, which has really suffered demographically. In the last uh, few generations, it used to be the plurality of American Jews were conservative Jews. And he said that one of the weaknesses of conservative Judaism is the name itself. He said that young Jews just are poised and trained to hear the word conservative as a bad thing. So they don't want to join conservative Judaism, even though it's not affiliated with Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill or any conservative figure you want to name. But the name itself is so poisoned minds of some Jews that it's actually hurt one of the grand uh, traditional of American Jews. So when I say conservative, I just want you to understand my concept of it. And just going forward, and I know I don't have much more time and I look forward to hearing Sapperstein's thoughts, but there's a couple of things I really want to press going forward about what we should be doing to promote Jewish content. First thing is, 
How do you hear the Jewish people? You can't marry. You have Jewish children. You pass the tradition on to the next generation. And too often we don't do that. The marriage rates, birth rates in Judaism are not great. You know, Jew, uh, the Jewish population in America has been demographically stagnant for half a century. We have not grown at all. Now, within the Bali Israel, there have been groups that are growing and groups that are shrinking. So the Orthodox movement, which does really press marriage. Uh, my daughter is 20 and she's constantly going to engagement parties and weddings. Um, they press uh, marriage, they press having children, and they press passing on the tradition. That's been growing. But I don't think just an Orthodox solution is the solution for American Jewry. I personally am Orthodox, but I want all of American Jewry to grow. That's how we retain our power, how we retain a safe home here. Because without numbers, people will will start to ignore us. We won't be safe. And in terms of safety, we also need to think about the institutions. Conservatism also is about gratitude for the institutions that we have in this great country. And the, um, the police are one of the institutions that help and protect us. And I know there's been a lot of criticism of the police the last few years, but you're not going to hear it from me because the police are what protect us when there are anti-Semites who want to do terrible things. Michael Goodman, who um, First rabbi well, mentioned uh, Michael Gitman up here in the back there. Uh, Michael Gitman, it was really a brilliant, brilliant uh, lecture and podcast interview by Michael Gitman. He said that we saw this week that what happens without the Jewish state is Kishida. Without Jewish sovereignty, there's pogrom. And we need to think about that. What are the institutions that keep us safe? Goodman said that for 12 hours last Saturday, the Jewish state did not exist in parts of Southern Israel. And without the Jewish state in existence, Jews were slaughtered also. So we, in America, need to think about the institutions that keep us safe, including the police, and including um, laws that should be enforced against crime. Because in Brooklyn, New York, you see Jews get beaten up regularly in the streets of Brooklyn. There's a story in the New York Post about a Jew who's visiting from Miami in Brooklyn, and one of the hooligans started to beat him up. And the guy said, I'm going to call the police. And the guy said, call the police. They don't do anything. And if you know that the police won't do anything when you beat up a Jew, then it's open season on Jews. And we need to think about policies that lead to that out. Then another thing I want to talk about is in terms of religion. And, and Rabbi Shmuley said it better than I could about maybe detaching politics and religion. Your religion is not your politics. Judaism is something that's been around for thousands of years. Whatever political party you belong to in this country, whether you're a Republican, they've only been around for 160 years. If you're a Democrat, they've been around a little longer than almost 200 years. And those parties have changed. If you were a Democrat, 150 years ago, you were in the pro-slavery party. If you were a Republican 70 years ago, you were in the non-pro-Israel party. These party affiliations change, and we should be careful about linking ourselves too closely with them. And we should link ourselves more closely to Judaism, to Jewish people, and to Jewish community. And when we link politics and religion too closely, I think it comes at the cost of our religion, it comes at the cost of our identity, 
and we, I think, also can take it. So those are the things that I really want to see us do, really focus on Jewish continuity, Jewish unity, passing the tradition on, and remembering that even if we disagree about politics, remember that image of Rabbi Saperstein with me standing here arm in arm saying, and I will close with a presidential story. I will close with a story about Abraham Lincoln. Now, in 1858, Abraham Lincoln engaged in a famous series of debates with Stephen Douglas. And Lincoln was in the right in those debates. He was arguing against slavery. And Douglas was arguing for popular sovereignty. If people want slavery, hey, they can have it. And Douglas was wrong. But Douglas won that 1858 series of debates. How do we know this? Because he was appointed. They didn't have direct elections back then. He was appointed to the Senate, the Senate seat that Lincoln was and then Douglas won. Um, Douglas got it. But two years later, Lincoln won the ultimate victory because he became president. And when Lincoln was inaugurated, he went up on to the dais in front of the Capitol to be inaugurated. And he was giving a speech. He had his big stovepipe hat. He was back then. And to give a speech, as was the cut for the time, he took off his hat, but there was no place to put it. And Stephen Douglas, who Lincoln had defeated in the debates, and also had now defeated for the presidency, because Douglas ran and lost the presidency. Stephen Douglas is saying where Rabbi Saperstein now is, and he held Lincoln's hat. And whatever happens in these debates in these series, I want you to know. That I will always hold David's hat. I know he will always hold mine. And whatever happens in the night in the 2024 election, maybe David's team will win, maybe my team will win, maybe we'll be on different teams because of all the political shifts that are going on right now. Uh, but we're always there to hold each other's hats. And we in the Jewish community should always do that. First, it is an honor and a delight to be here, Alan, with something bearing the name of your family and i thank you for your leadership over many years to be back here in this community with rabbinic colleagues who i so deeply respect it's always a particular pleasure to be with um Shmuley, who is one of the most creative forces in contemporary judaism and in honor to be with tebby uh Troy. Tevi and I really have become friends over many, many years. We do battle sometimes, um, but we share far more in common than the things that divide us. This is, for all the obvious reasons, a bit of a complicated night. We're trying to do a lot of different things. We know many of you came to hear a thoughtful discourse about the kind of policies that would be best for America, for American Jewry, for Israel, for, uh, and how that resonates with Jewish values. Um, and we will get more deeply into uh, to that piece of it. Um, but I want to begin by, in the spirit of which Debbie and I had agreed to in advance, to make just a few comments on the situation in Israel. Every speech that I have given, I'm a dove on Israeli issues, outspokenly so. I believe there can't be long-term survival for Israel without some accommodation of the national rights and aspirations of the Palestinian people. I believe the occupation has been wrongly handled um, and has resulted in policies that really are immoral policies. I believe that the attack on the judicial system is a grave error 
for Israel that will damage its strength in the long run. And that the scars from that, even though they have been put aside, those differences, now the scars of that are going to be deep for a long time to come. And yet every speech that I give on Israel, without exception, I begin by reminding people that Israel remains surrounded by enemies, that if they believe they could militarily destroy Israel, would not hesitate to do so. If Hamas believed it could do to every Israeli what it did in the ones that they had access to, they wouldn't hesitate to destroy Israel. It would be another genocidal attack on the Jewish people and we would have lost however many millions of our brothers and sisters. And the only thing that stands in the way of that is Israel's strength enhanced by American support, which is why that special relationship between the United States and Israel is so precious. Whatever your politics are, whatever you're thinking, whoever you're thinking about voting for in the next election, I hope everybody was proud of what President Biden did, how strongly he set up. I was wanted to be part of a group of 20 Jewish leaders who sat with him the next day. He spent another half hour for us. And then Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, gave us a detailed analysis of what's going on. And then you're attending the domestic policy advisors oversaw a meeting that went on for another hour asking us, what can we do that will help Israel? What we do that will help American Jewry? and a range where we talked about to what was happening on the college campuses, to the threats to our synagogues and to mosques and Palestinian community centers and Arab sites in the United States. We raised those concerns as well. And we talked about what needed to be done to, I happen to be coincidentally sharing an advisory group that is based on dealing with human trafficking, um, for the federal government, but it is based in part in the, the Department of Transportation. My major interlocutor is in charge of all things international charter flights. So we were actually able to help provide the information of what the Jewish community needed um, in terms of charter flights as the commercial airlines began to, um, uh, to close down. The DOT was fantastic um, about reaching out to us and, and wanting to know what they could do to be helpful about that. And all over the American government, there were different DHS to the Department of Justice, um, uh, here the State Department, all across the American government was that kind of outreach to the Jewish people. This is an extraordinary country. And who would have envisioned a moment where Jews facing rising anti-Semitism would have a government of the country in which they live that would launch a government-wide, society-wide response against anti-Semitism. Never happened before in all of Jewish history. This is a country that has given Jews more rights, more freedoms, more opportunities than we have ever known anywhere else in Jewish history. And that has allowed us to build our institutions in a way that is extraordinarily powerful. 
one example of that, now I'm going to tackle uh, my dear friend, uh, Tevi, on one of the assertions he made, is for three generations, the high birth rate of the Orthodox community has led people to believe that they were in the ascendancy in terms of numbers within the Jewish community, but their numbers have stayed almost consistent for three generations in the United States. They turn out somewhere between 10 and 14% in the polling data, and they really have not gone up at all. And you're right about conservative Judaism, and uh, Jack's uh, insight on that is fascinating. Um, it was the largest segment of the Jewish community when I was growing up. But what happened in the last 60 years is every theologically liberal denomination in this country, Episcopalians and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists and the UCC and all of these denominations, all of them, all of them, without exception, except Unitarians that remain steady, without exception, have shrunk nearly half the size of what they were in 1960 or 1970. The growth for a long time was in the fundamentalist movement and somewhat in Orthodox Judaism, although narrowly so. But um, there's one exception to that. The Reformed Jewish movement it has grown by leaps and bounds over the last 60 years. When Pew did its massive poll in 2013, Reformed Judaism had grown to be larger than all the other streams of Judaism combined. Orthodox, reform, Orthodox, conservative, reconstructionist, renewal. Seven years later in the 2020 poll, Reform Judaism was 7% larger than all the other streams put together. It is true that in that 2020 poll, um, and Pew featured this as kind of their lead on it, that there was a significant increase amongst younger Orthodox Jews, the youngest cohort, 18 to 29, which had been in the poll seven years earlier, 11% and now was 18%, an increase of 7%. What I pointed out to them was they buried the lead about the reform movement. If you looked at the next cohort up, Orthodox Jews tend to get married earlier than conservative or reform Jews. They have kids earlier. If you look at the next cohort up, 30 to 45, when most Reformed Jewish kids are getting married and having kids, our increase was even larger than the increase of the Orthodox Jewish community. And Pew did then release a supplementary poll that looked at switching in the Jewish community and saw that even from Orthodox Judaism, Reformed Judaism is attracts the most Jews who are moving from one stream to, um, uh, to the other. So it's very complex, and the interesting question is why? And this brings us a little bit to our topic here. Um, here, liberal values are absolutely central to the growth of Reform Judaism. And I'll just make this point and then segue into the political piece of what we're doing here. Um, first, uh, the very idea of kind of human reason and faith being fully integratable is an idea that attracts people uh, in human autonomy to make decisions existentially about what works for you 
um, uh, in terms of your religious behavior is an attractive uh, motif for many Jews today. Um, secondly, Alex Schindler, the president of the URJ here for 20 some odd years, um, opened the doors of our congregation first to intermarried families. He saw it as a way to get more kids in intermarriages raised Jewishly. And he said, if they're not being raised in any other faith except Judaism um, here and they want to join, they should be fully welcomed into our synagogue. Secondly, he's called on us to open up our doors to Jews of patrilineal descent, like Bill Cohn um, here. Bill Cohn wouldn't have left the synagogue and become a Unitarian if there had been a Reformed Jewish synagogue that would have welcomed him. In, but unfortunately, when Bill Cohn was growing up, Maine was the last state we didn't have a Reformed synagogue in. Um, uh, and so that was the second reason. Third, he called on us to open up the doors to the LGBTQ community and to welcome them into our synagogue. And fifth, we've always kept a focus on social justice. And social justice is one of the most defining characteristics of how Jews express their Jewish identity, according to almost every poll. Even high levels of people in the Orthodox community calling for it. So social justice is a broad term. There may be conservatives who are absolutely convinced they are doing social justice as much as liberals do, and we should never forget that, and they are um, uh, here. But for most Jews thinking about that, when you probe deeper, it resonates with liberal approaches um, to Jewish life. So in terms of Jewish continuity, we all have our strengths. For us, we try to use the social justice commitment of people both within our movement and outside our movement to bring them back to Jewish study and Jewish ritual and worship and Jewish communal life. So we all have our strengths and go about it in our respective ways. I want to say, as, as I segue into the political thing, I want to say something about, you know, we stood together as Jews. I want to stand together as Americans here for a minute here. I want to remind people that I presume if this kind of congregational grouping is like most in America, probably there is a larger number of people who consider themselves liberals and conservatives who vote Democratic as opposed to Republican. Um, but I want to remind people about this. In the 20th century, almost every single major achievement that liberals would, would salute and applaud and embrace about America happened because of bipartisan support, a bipartisan coalition of decency on Capitol Hill and bipartisan, multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious coalitions of decency in communities like Phoenix all across America. Think about it, the labor movement, the anti-nuclear movements of the 50s, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War movement, the environmental movement, the great society programs, all of the individual arms of those great society programs, things about housing, things about food, things about healthcare, all of those happened because of bipartisan, bipartisan coalition of decency. The Soviet Jewry movement, the pro-Israel movement, it happened because of bipartisan coalitions of decency on Capitol Hill. It transformed America for the better.
Today, we are in a moment of hyperpartisanship that really threatens the future of America. And for those of you who are not Republicans, I want you to just keep in mind what, did, what impact Republican Jews had on our political system. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, there were strong isolationist components of the Republican Party. It was Orthodox Jews who helped change that. Excuse me, Republican Jews who helped change it. They engaged people who had not been friendly to Israel, who had never been to Israel, took them to Israel. It changed a lot of the senators who had voted against the aid package and never did anything to be helpful into pro-Israel advocates on Capitol Hill. It was Jewish Republicans in many states across the country that helped stop the religious right from taking over more of the Republican parties than they succeeded in taking over back when the moral majority and the Christian coalition um, were at their heights. It was Republican Jews who helped moderate a lot of the more extreme policies at uh, during that period of time. I'm here. And Kevin Troy, to me, represents this long, proud tradition of Jewish Republicans that go all the way back to Lincoln and the Republican Party during that period of time that was much more um, uh, resonant with the kind of values that we would share today. Um, uh, and it, it has been an extraordinary tradition. So I just want those of us who are liberals and, and Democratic leading just to always keep that in mind. We can always learn from each other. And the Problem Solvers Coalition of 64 members, half Republican and Democrat on the hillside, the Bipartisan Policy Center that Tebby is involved with personally, all of these are needed more than ever before if we're going to move forward. And it, and it isn't too late. Think about it. We got the Violence Against Women's Act renewed because of bipartisan support. We got the infrastructure built through because of bipartisan uh, uh, support. Um, uh, here, you can go down a list of a number of important achievements, even in this hyper-partisan era, that happened because of bipartisan support. So I simply want to offer that as a context. So I was going to ask you, when was the last time the plurality of American Jews voted for a Republican candidate for president? And the answer is behind you here, uh, the year 1920. And that's and only because Eugene Debs, the socialist um, uh, candidate for president, who as many of you know was in jail at the time, who was in jail at the time that he ran, um, got such a high uh, percentage of the uh, of the Jewish vote. But that was the last time there was a plurality of the Jewish vote. You want to go to the next? <laughs> <laughs> So this is a slide that I've been working on putting together for decades. Uh, <laughs> the Jewish vote. And you could see that consistently the Jewish vote goes to the Democrats. Right? There, anybody who says the Jews are going to vote for the Republican in the next election is just wrong and don't trust them. But the interesting thing is the variation. So when you see the Jews going 30 plus percent for the Republican, that's usually a good sign for the Republicans. McGovern v. Nixon, 35% of Jews voted Republican. 
big landslide win for next Carter Reagan, 39% of Jews voted for the Republican. And again, remember, the Democrats got more votes among the Jewish community than the Republicans in all these cases. The 39% went for Reagan, big win for Reagan, 31% went for Reagan in 84. Again, big win for Republicans, and again, a big win in 35, 35% to Cox's first push, which got 35% of the Jewish vote. Now here is this massive collapse from 35 to 11. What happened here is, first of all, there were three candidates, Bush, Perot, and Clinton. So um, Perot took 9% of the vote, and I would have to assume a lot of them went from Bush, because uh, Clinton got 80%, which is around where Democrats all get a little higher. But second, remember, Bush was not great on Israel, and I remember the, uh, the infamous statement by uh, James Baker, which was uh, said, word that F the Jews, they don't vote for us anyway. And so that really hurt the Jewish support for Republicans in that election, and the uh, support was in the teens for the next couple of elections. So the variation, as I call it, is um, from 11%, which was the, um, I guess it's actually 10%, from about 10% Johnson Goldwater to uh, 39%. And that span from 10 to 39% that could go for Republicans, that is kind of, um, that is really the essential aspect of uh, Jewish power in America and that that is what can turn elections. When the Jewish vote goes up into the 30s for Republicans, that's good news for Republicans. When the Jewish vote goes over 80% or 75 to 80% for the Democrats, that's good news for the Democrats. It doesn't mean Jews determine these elections, but they are a barometer that would tell you what's going to happen in the election. Next slide. So um, the Jews obviously uh, as I was just saying, more uh, identify as Democrats, 26% identify as Republicans. But within the Orthodox community, 75% identify as Republicans. And that's gone up. And what we, we saw, I worked on the Bush campaign in 2004, and the Orthodox support for Bush in 2000 was about 40%. Remember, Joe Lieberman, Orthodox Jew, was running on the Democratic ticket. The Orthodox Jews went um, only about 40%. So a majority of Orthodox Jews went to the Democrat. In, in 2000, it was Al Gore with Lieberman was taken. But by 2004, remember 9-11 happened, the second Intifada happened in that period. Suddenly, and George W. Bush was not like his father on Israel, much more pro-Israel. So you saw that jump to 70% and 70% Orthodox support for the, the Republican. Again, that's not overall Jewish support because the Orthodox are a minority. But 70% Orthodox support really made a difference in Ohio and in Florida, and those were the states that were the key states for Bush's win in 2004. So you can see when people are asked, uh, how emotionally attached are you to Israel? Um, that there is a difference, but overwhelmingly in, in Jewish life, people ascribe an attachment to Israel as being essential to their uh, Jewish identity. Um, oh, this is a, another variant we talked about. You looked at Republican versus um, uh, Democrat. This is a slide of liberal, moderate, liberal, moderate, and conservative. This is from the Jewish Electorate um, Institute. People should know that the Jewish Electorate Institute is affiliated with the Jewish Democratic Council of America. Um, uh, here, it doesn't mean that it isn't a valid poll. But just people should be aware that uh, that it's there, and probably it probably is pretty accurate in terms of what we know from Pew and other groups 
um, who have polled uh, deeply in the Jewish community as well. Okay, so when asked in the same poll, what is most important to you? And remember, this was in June, so it's long before, um, uh, you know, the, um, the, I guess, the events of, uh, of this past week. Um, this is talking about here in America, not in Israel. Um, the future of democracy was number one. Inflation in the economy, which is always a big issue. If you look at the polls, in the polls asking about, you know, measuring Biden's popularity on issues, when asked, how are you doing economically? There's actually people say doing pretty well. When you ask about how is the economy doing, drops precipitously um, in terms of that. And the Democratic uh, uh, strategists are trying to figure out how to change that. And so far, nothing they're doing with all of the data that they are tossing out about how strong the economy is seems to be making it a uh, dent in it and going back to the it's economy stupid um, kind of thing. It is a real uphill fight for the Democrats if they can't change um, that, that perception. Abortion is a big issue, climate, and Israel is, is down there. And, and Kevin and I have not talked about this um, uh, here. A, a couple of things which Kevin pointed out as soon as we saw this, if this were taken today, it would be very, very different. But if you look at the last 20 years, never goes over 10%. It's always in single digits. I think the reason is that most people actually, Jews as a whole, I'm not talking about the Orthodox community, that I think if you look at, you know, at the polling data more deeply, it would be a different answer. I think they think both parties are going to be good. I hear it doesn't really matter. Special relationship, both parties are going to be okay. So it's not what determines the vote um, for people that way. It's not that Israel is not important um, uh, to people. That's what I've always held from uh, the polling data that we've seen now for a couple of decades that have shown um, Israel always to be in kind of a single digit as you measure what people care about. And if you go on, I think there's one more. Or is that it? Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that one. <laughs> so thinking about the next election for US president, if the election were being held today, just between the following candidates, meaning Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and undecided, for whom would you vote? And as you can see, you know, reform overwhelmingly democratic, conservative, decidedly democratic, but not so much. Orthodox, the mirror image of kind of the uh, reform, or the mirror image of no denomination um, that are very uh, close. And uh, uh, here, the, it, it's interesting, the, in, in many polls, younger people tend to lean a little more liberal um, on issues particularly, but here you see the Jewish community, the older cohort seems to lean a little more democratic, and as it's true with every ethnic group, as far as I'm aware of, men and women, women always break democratic uh, more in an age of which abortion rights, it's an issue. I think it is even more so. All right, and that was the last slide. Okay. <laughs> so, 
So um, under the rules of the debate, David said that I would get a five-minute rebuttal. I'm not going to need five minutes. I'm just going to say very briefly, because uh, I took some notes on what David said. Uh, so first of all, uh, to the extent that he said very nice things about the Republicans, I say thank you. <laughs> to the extent that he compared me, uh, or at least mentioned me in the same breath as LinkedIn, I say doubly thank you, and I'm very appreciative. And with that, we'd be happy to take questions. Oh, and the one other thing I did want to say is on the Orthodox reform thing. I don't see it as a competition. If reform Judaism grows, great. If conservative Judaism grows, great. If Orthodox Judaism grows, great. I want Judaism to grow. And what the point I made, that is still true, is that we've been demographically stagnant for 50 years. And I think we need to change that paradigm. My only point is that it, in relation to the political issues we're dealing with, that social justice focus that's so strongly in the identity of American Judaism and is woven into um, uh, almost all of the streams of Judaism. Uh, this notion that we have a prophetic mission, we have to be alike to the nations, that isn't something politics separate from religion. For most American Jews, that is part, an essential part, of their religion, as I believe it is to Tevi, and certainly is to Shmuley, and to every one of the rabbis in this room um, uh, here. So it is, uh, uh, you know. It is time for just, questions. Yep. Wonderful, wonderful. So here's our first written question uh, for you, Dr. Troy. While I respect Dr. Troy's commitment to conservative values, that party doesn't seem to exist today. Instead, it is now a cult of personality dominated by conspiracy theorists and election deniers. So Dr. Troy, where is this conservative party? So what I would say is that there is definitely a battle going on for the soul of the Republican Party. I also think there's a battle going on for the soul of the Democratic Party. Um, I was very, very encouraged by what President Biden said, but I also noted reports that he had a fight with the staff to say it, and he had to admonish them because they were trying to push a both sides of the approach. Every leftist I've spoken to, every progressive I've spoken to in the last week has said how disheartened they were by the lack of allyship in the social justice movement, the dozens of groups at Harvard that uh, supported Hamas, the BLM putting out a showing uh, an image of a paraglider, like this is something uh, to embrace. So um, I think there's, there's definitely some soul searching going on in the Democratic Party. As for the Republican Party, I worked for George W. Bush, who was the head of the party, not 15 years ago, it was only 15 years ago. And when I served under George W. Bush, he said the three things that he was fighting against were xenophobia, isolationism, and protectionism. It was only 15 years ago that he was head of the Republican Party. Right now we're having a debate on who's gonna be the next Republican nominee, and maybe Trump wins it, personally hope he doesn't, but whoever is the next nominee, I mean, it's either going to be 24 or 28, there's going to be a different Republican. And I think you will see a different perspective emerge. But I also think that we are in a period of party shifting. There is party realignment going on. The Republican Party today um, is the party largely of non-college educated, mostly whites, but not just whites. You're seeing increases in the um, and the people of color who are um, who are not college educated who are voting Republican, and uh, again, 15 years ago, the Republican Party was the party of college educated. So there is a realignment going on within both parties. Um, I am for fighting for my own particular vision that you've heard me 
talk about tonight within the Republican Party, and I'm going to keep fighting as long as I can, and we'll see how it plays out. But uh, I recognize that there are, there are problems in my party. I recognize that there are problems in the other party, and um, I hope that the, the right sides went out in both parties. If, if a candidate with uh, George W. Bush's views was running in the primaries right now, is there any possibility that... I mean, who who is as moderate as George uh, W. Bush? George W. Bush was a hell of a politician. He knew what he was doing, and he won the Republican nomination in 2000, in 2000 against some very tough competition, and he defined the party in so doing. And whoever is going to be the next Republican nominee will have that opportunity to define the party going forward. So is the assumption that like Nikki Haley isn't actually saying what she believes and if she got the nomination, she would redefine it in a more moderate um, uh, kind of position? I mean, it's not one of the candidates who holds the kind of positions that used to be the ones I associated with you and with George W. Bush and with mainstream Republicans uh, for decades. And that means that if the Jim Jordans are the ones controlling that party um, uh, here, that the policies that they're going to be pushing are absolutely deleterious to the well-being of the Jewish community and to America. So first of all, I thought um, people had to write their questions down and submit them. <laughs> all right, so let's go to that next question. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I guess you're as a scholar of presidential debates, you like to uh, stick to the rules here, which I appreciate. <laughs> so if, if each of you can pick uh, one or two political issues that are considered kind of party line issues, um, and that you would argue, uh, you know, as, as liberal or conservative, are so clearly one-sided from a Jewish perspective. Uh, that there, there's a party line issue today publicly that you think is clearly, um, uh, you know, from a Jewish perspective, on, uh, takes a liberal approach to it. Make sense? I, I think I laid it out in, in my opening remarks. I think Jews should be supporting the great institutions of this country that have kept us safe, for, should be for pluralism, we should be against dividing ourselves by race. The Ronald Reagan used to say, liberty binds us together. We're not bound together by whatever our ethnic group is, or our racial group, or our gender group, but liberty, the shared belief that we are part of a system, of a tradition, of a constitutional system that says that all men are created equal, that we all have rights under the law, that we have certain freedoms, certain including free speech, and freedom of religion, freedom of association, and the free press. And I think that um, supporting those traditions and making sure that the institutions are strong and that we have our own form of protection. Again, uh, as, as I was saying earlier, where there's no um, uh, where there's no police, where there's no rule of law, where there's no sovereignty, Jews are the most vulnerable. So that that's my number one issue. So there, uh, I struggle because I there's so many issues that I think are in danger in terms of uh, issues that are central to the aesthetic and the and the consensus views of the Jewish community: women's rights, LGBTQ rights, abortion rights, uh, reproductive rights, um, uh, in the future of of uh, global climate change uh, from a party that has so many elements in it that just don't accept science. And I don't think anyone that doesn't accept science is worthy of being holding um, public office um, uh, here. But if I had to choose one in issue or rubric of issues 
It actually would be what's happened with the Roberts Court. If you look at the courts from the Warren Court, the Berger Court, even the Rehnquist Court with Scalia and Rehnquist on the court, and you think about the agenda of kind of the far right in abortion, in overturn Roe v. Wade, restrict voting rights, um, uh, here, um, restrict the, uh, uh, the regulatory power of the executive agencies um, in, in, this, uh, in this country. Um, uh, here, and you go down the agenda of what the far right did, uh, uh, undoing the Miranda uh, impact on police um, uh, here, et cetera. Um, and you go down that list of things um, uh, here, uh, uh, restricting LGBTQ rights um, uh, here, and you know opposition to gay marriage for a long period of time. Um, none of that happened in the in, in think about who some of the key people were. They were Warren and Berger and Brennan and Blackman and Souter and O'Connor, they were all Republican appointments. These people um, uh, here who expanded separation of church and state, who expanded abortion rights, who expanded LGBTQ rights, who expanded civil liberties and stuff. If you look as Linda Greenhouse, the, the respected in New York Times longtime court watcher wrote at the end of this, they said, you go down that list, the Roberts Court is undid, undone with the exception of areas of LGBTQ rights, has undone every single one of the expansion of liberties and freedoms um, here. So when the election comes, elections matter as to who gets appointed as judges. We are facing a tranche, a huge tranche of Clinton judges who are gonna be retiring. And who appoints that replacements for those let alone the the older ones on the Supreme Court, if they step down or become ill, is going to be absolutely vital to the future of the country. So elections matter. So if I had to pick one, it would be that aspect of our democracy that depends on a court system. And if you've lost the court, by the way, the high court for a period of time, what happens in Congress and the White House becomes even more important. Here's a question. So, well, actually, I think yeah. I need to give a okay. quick rebuttal on that. So, uh, <laughs> so I also agree that the courts are important, and I agree that elections matter for who uh, gets to run the Supreme Court. And I am encouraged by a Supreme Court that does restrict regulatory power and leaves it up to Congress to make these decisions where the decision should be made. And you talk about Roe v. Wade. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided because it took the decision away from the people. The courts should not be making these decisions for all of us. The courts should allow the government process to work. The people should rule on these issues. And you don't get a double rebuttal to them. <laughs> okay, so here's a question from our Zoom. There are many blue cities and states in deep decline due to high crime, homelessness, defund the police, etc. People are fleeing New York and California because they had enough. There's many Jews in these cities who are Democrats and keep voting for progressive Democrats who are destroying their cities. What will it take for them to stop voting for the party in order to fix their cities and lifestyle? I think David should handle that one. You know, the, the, the issue of crime and statistics of crime is a very complicated one. We don't really know 
fully what causes increases in crime and what causes decreases in the criminal rates when they fell precipitously um, uh, here 20 years ago. Um, no one really came up with a clear explanation. There's no consensus about why it happened and why it uh, and why it didn't happen. Um, but it was not because somehow police were made far more powerful or able to run freer than they had been before. This was a time that there were restrictions on the police because of the Supreme Court um, and the uh, in the cases that the Supreme Court dealt with police powers. Um, uh, here, so this is a central challenge. It doesn't have to do with the quality of life. Um, here, obviously, in communities that uh, there's a lot of cooperation in terms of violence prevention programs and and diversion programs and working with kids after school programs for them and that kind of thing. It helps the rates fall down. Um, and and you know, the, neither the Democratic Party or the Republican Party are calling to defund the police. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's never been a uh, policy of the Democratic Party. So the question of how we do this better is a constant struggle for us. And we're constantly learning um, uh, from each iteration of the ways of uh, the ebb and the flow of the crime rates in, in America. But we know the more educated people are, the less likely they are to engage in the kind of crime we're talking about. And when people are out of school and out of jobs and out of hope and filled with frustration and despair and a lot of free time on their uh, on their hands, it is a prescription for disaster. So uh, a overall program, coordinated program addressing those problems is absolutely essential. I just quickly say it's also a prescription for disaster if you don't arrest people who commit the crimes and convict the people when they commit the crimes and imprison them for the crimes. There's no disincentive to engage in crime. 27 of 30 cities with the highest murder rates as of June, with the higher murder rates as of June 22, were run by Democratic mayors. Five or six major cities in the U.S. Uh, with progressive DAs uh, who had promised to do limited prosecutions saw historic levels in crime increases. And, and David talks a little bit about the Supreme Court before there were restrictions on police. Yes, there were restrictions on, on police, that came from the Supreme Court, but it's very different of restrictions on police and what we've seen recently, which are active efforts not to prosecute criminals for the crimes they commit. And that not only puts all of America in danger, but particularly puts Jews in danger. In, in New York City, there was a 409% increase year over year in violent crimes against Jews. And that's a real problem. And we are the canaries and, in the coal mine of this crime. And we agree on that last uh, uh, statement here. Um, the um, it, it, the data on cities, let me put that, let's accept that for a moment here. If you look at states and you look at states that have stronger gun uh, restrictions and those that have less gun restrictions, um, here far and away, the ones that have least gun restrictions, one that have stand your ground and, and, and uh, no permit necessary in order to carry guns at all, in order to get own a gun and carry guns, um, they are the ones, the five that have the, 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 the least restrictions have the highest death rates. And the ones that have the, the greatest restrictions have the lowest death rates at a state level. So the state data and the city data, they work a little differently in different directions. Um, it's, it, it is a complex set of issues, but both of those data sets are correct. What is your answer to the crisis at our southern border? 
I'll go first. There's all kinds of different people who say I want this policy, a more restrictive immigration policy, a less restrictive immigration policy. What I want is a coherent immigration policy. Right now, we have a policy where we just let people in at the southern border. We're not stopping them from coming in. There's hundreds of thousands of people, uh, hundreds of millions of people coming in a year. New York City has spent $9 billion of its $90 billion budget on uh, migrants to the city. When they come into the country, if they come and they claim asylum, they're put into these immigration courts where they are not seen for well over a year because there's such a backlog. And at the same time, we have legal immigration is so hard to take place. I want to see more legal immigrants. As I said, I work with George W. He wanted to see more legal immigrants. We have to have a normalized path to legal immigration that I would say should focus on skills because we need a lot of skilled people in this country. And the U.S. is obviously a buyer's market. People want to come to this country, so we should incentivize the people who will be most helpful to this country. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have some programs for asylum and some people who need help and maybe some lotteries, but we should really have a coherent system that allows in more legal immigrants while preventing illegal immigrants. And if anybody questions whether we should have some kind of security at the border, just look at the horrors of what happened in Israel this past week. You need a secure border so as you can protect the sovereignty of your country. And we'll make a comment about the walls. Um, here, let me... Um, I didn't say wall, but I said secure. You said reflect on what happened in, in Israel. Um, the um, I hope you'd agree, and I think you would, that it's not just skilled workers. We have, we have a need for many unskilled workers as well in large areas of the economy that aren't being filled by citizens at this time. So it's not just skilled workers, it's unskilled workers as well. It used to be there was bipartisan agreement on this well through the Bush administration of what a comprehensive immigration policy would be that had a path of citizenship um, uh, here that improved the asylum things and raised the numbers uh, here. And the Democratic Party, the Republican Party is just somewhere else on this issue, just not interested in any kind of comprehensive um, uh, uh, policy at this particular point. If you want a picture of how much the country has changed, just consider this, because it affects President Bush. Um, here. The last time the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized, that's to be reauthorized periodically, it was the last time it was reauthorized, 2006, for 25 years. The vote in the House of Representatives was 390 to 37. In the Senate, it was 98 to zero, unanimous. It was signed by a Republican president. And that same bill would probably not get a single Republican vote today. That's how much the country has changed. Um, in this, and you see that in immigration reform too. They used to be Republican conservative champions of um, of uh, immigration reform in a sensible way, and it just doesn't exist. I would say the Democrats also are making it very hard to do any kind of border security. So, 15 years ago, when I was in the Bush administration, we had a comprehensive immigration reform. It almost passed. Harry Reid actually killed it. 
Um, it was about to pass, and Harry Reid held it over for the weekend so he could convince his members to vote against it because the Democrats would lose the issue. And since then, I understand what, what, what Rabbi Saberstein is saying about how Republicans have been a little more wary on the legal immigration front, but Democrats have become more wary and less willing on the border security front. And so you need those two things to come together, and both parties have some fault. Next question. Over the last 50 years, have Democrats or Republicans been better for Israel? Over the last 50 years, I, I call it a tie um, uh, here, I really do. I'm glad to, to make the argument, but only if Tevi disagrees with me. I think the last 50 years is kind of the period of uh, Republican ascendancy on Israel. I think in the 60s and 70s, the Democrats were the more, more pro-Israel party. And then uh, with a number of factors that happened in the 70s, including um, in the Young Kippur War, the military establishment, which was long anti-Israel, recognized with Israel's big win uh, that they were able to see the inside of Soviet tanks that they had never been able to see. So, the, uh, so there were military and intelligence coups that Israel pulled off that brought the national security establishment on board with Israel. And then you also saw the rise of the evangelical vote in favor of Israel, and that became a dominant part of the Republican Party. And then also another thing that happened, and this um, is something that really happened in the 90s, was Israel became more of a free market economy. And, and senator Rudy Boschwitz, who was a Republican senator, very pro-Israel, in the 90s, he used to say that in the 70s and 80s, other Republicans would come up to him, and, and I think uh, Dave was talking about this earlier, that there, there was a time when many Republicans were not so pro-Israel and the Orthodox Jews and APAC helped bring them around. But they, they would come up to Rudy Boschwitz and they would say, um, your people are so good at business, how come they have a socialist state? Um, and, and that turned around in, in the 90s. Now we have the um, uh, the startup nation and all of the amazing things that uh, happen in the Israeli economy. And Israel has more uh, NASDAQ startups than any country, but the, um, but the US. So, uh, there are a number of factors that led to Republicans becoming more pro-Israel. The Democrats, as I said, were the more pro-Israel party. Um, and I think the 90s were the ascendancy, the high, the high point of a two-party bipartisan support consensus on Israel. And I think that um, I think that we've seen true. some... True, Clinton probably could have been elected prime minister. Yeah. He was so popular. So... Um, but, but I, I do think that in recent years, we've seen some real trouble on the left in terms of Israel. I mentioned some of the um, really disheartening um, leftist groups that were basically backing Hamas after what happened this week. I think Biden has said to, um, to Netanyahu, he said, this is not Scoop Jackson's Democratic Party anymore, meaning it's not the pro-Israel party that it used to be in the 70s and 80s. And um, I'm hoping, I really what I really want, I don't want a wedge issue on Israel. I want bipartisan consensus on Israel. And I'm hoping that the horrors of this last week will have kind of shaken both parties, but especially the Democrats with uh, some of their social justice warriors who are not pro-Israel and affirmatively anti-Israel. I think maybe we'll shake that out of the Democratic Party and we will have a bipartisan consensus on Israel. Because again, I don't want one party to be better on Israel. I want both parties to be great on Israel. Yeah, I would argue that that it is Republican. It is a Republican. It, it's worth applauding for it. Um, I would argue it's a Republican party that has made anti-Semitism in pro-Israel activity a wedge issue. 
Um, uh, it is a very small component of the Democratic Party. The Democratic that that uh, votes against what we the, the consensus in the Jewish community um, would want. Overwhelmingly, the Democratic Party votes in favor of uh, the pro-Israel uh, position on this. And every time one of the the members of the squad or whomever says something or or makes a statement that's an anti-Semitic. They immediately come, the Republicans come out with a letter saying, we want everyone to sign this letter um, uh, here. And depending on what was said, sometimes Democrats will sign in and others. It puts them in a, a way of, try, of trying to uh, pit them against each other um, uh, in this. You know, there are times people say things that are critical that the uh, that opponents of the Democrats will say, that's anti-Semitic. We want you to condemn it. Um, uh, here. And then you got this debate, was it anti-Semitism, was it not? And they keep doing that. I mean, it's like when this happened, this tragedy happened a week ago, this major campaign, even after Republicans have been briefed by the intelligence um, agencies, that not one penny of the $6 billion had been released. Um, there was a concerted effort to condemn the president um, for having released $6 billion to Iran um, uh, that is being held for humanitarian aid. So I really think it is far more the Republicans that make it into a wedge issue. Um, uh, there. And, you know, I guess on some cases that happens in the opposite way with, with Democrats in terms of anti-Semitism from the far right figures in the Republican Party. Um, uh, well, sorry, you point to me on that. Say again? You, you point to me as an anti-Semitic far right figure. <laughs> you have a guilty conscience. I was pointing to you as representing what what is not in the Republican Party, the far right um, on the uh, on the issue here. But there are, in terms of anti-Semitism, there are people who propagate replacement theory, who who circulate, including the former president, who circulate anti-Semitic memes and messages um, and stuff, and gives sanction and ammunition uh, to some of those things. And we don't have. People normally protecting our congregations, police protecting our congregations from the left. This might be an exception to that this moment right now. Um, but it's the threats from the right um, uh, that have led to all of the attacks, um, the physical attacks on uh, on our synagogues. Um, and uh, that's different than what happens in the streets of New York, which I don't think is liberal versus conservative or Democrat versus Republican or anything. Um, uh, here. It's a different manifestation of anti-Semitism. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I think rebuttals for a little bit against, against the rules. Okay, so go ahead. Since we only have five minutes left, I'll make this the last question. And actually, two are similar enough. I'll combine them. And my apologies to the dozen folks that didn't get to your questions. Um, on, uh, on Zoom, how can we make it psychologically safe for families to discuss politics, even if we disagree and have intense feelings about our opinions? And then someone here in the room wrote, is there a role the synagogue can play in discussing political disagreements in a constructive and respectful manner when members have such strong and opposing views on political matters that it's impossible to have meaningful dialogue? I want to take this one, and I guarantee David is not, is not going to want to rebut. Because my recommendation for modeling constructive debate among people who obviously disagree vigorously on issues is the Eluba Elu series. And I think <laughs> that you should all tell your friends to have every community in America 
get the ALU the ALU series. Meaning us. Uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> and we will go and we'll model constructive debate because we are very close friends. And we disagree on some things in politics, but that doesn't stop the friendship. And we can sit and we can have Thanksgiving dinner together. We can have Hanukkah lighting together. We can do all those things together. And we, even and, though we disagree on these issues, it's not going to stop. And the nature of the debate discussion we've been having focuses on things that are different. If someone had asked the question, what are things you agree on? There would actually be a number of areas that we agree on. And, uh, you know, that gets lost in the debate sometimes. Um, I have this problem in my own family. I have one son who is very left on Israel, but he, you know, he cares about the future of Israel. He wants to see it be uh, what it should be. But, you know, he is appalled at what's happening to the civilian populations in, uh, in, um, uh, in uh, Gaza right now. Um, and I understand that. I'm anguish over it uh, here, even though I know it is intentionally created by Hamas. Yeah. In, in other words, it, the, the very nature of putting the, the uh, their military installations exactly where they are, not letting people get out, um, upholding them there, um, is precisely to put Israel in the bind where in order to militarily respond to Hamas, um, it is going to mean that innocent civilians are going to be killed. And yet, yet, the notion that innocent civilians are dying, I hope, would anguish anyone um, uh, here. And it will lead, as time goes on, to increasing criticism of Israel. Again, and Israel's enemies will try to use that as a way to make Israel a pariah um, in the world. And that's where we have to work um, uh, in terms of broad coalitions to acknowledge the the very painful moral dilemma that Israel is in um, here, and I know, I hope Israel is doing everything possible to minimize it. The warning to get out is an example of that, and um, uh, you know, as cruel as it is between bombing them when they're there and telling them to get out so they're going to live, um, uh, yeah, despite the hardships of it. Um, is, you know, the, the dilemma that Hamas has created by the way that they have set everything up here. Um, uh, here. And these are painful discussions in my house. Uh, they really are. Uh, and I suspect in other places. Yeah, don't, um, don't forget that Hamas, even as Israel tells them to get out, Hamas is stopping them yeah, from getting out. They're telling them not to leave. They're creating roadblocks to prevent them from leaving, and they've even attacked a convoy of people trying to leave. So Hamas is creating this humanitarian disaster. I never, ever forget that. But my last word that I want to say to but for this innocent civilians there, it doesn't matter. They're still dying um, here, and we have to be cognizant of that. And Israel must always do everything possible to mitigate um, uh, innocent civilians from uh, from being harmed. And, uh, you know, it's an impossible dilemma yeah. uh, here and a painful one. Um, I hope this models uh, differences. We both are civil libertarians who absolutely are committed to defending the wrong opinions of the other one to be heard and uh, protected. So uh, thank you. Everyone go. If you're a Republican, hug a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, hug a Republican. But whatever you do, go hug a Jew tonight. And, Thank you. and, what, and whatever your political views, vote.
get your everyone you know to vote and do everything possible to make sure that every American who is entitled to vote has the opportunity to do it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.